many readers of the Bible are of the conviction that the passage that is before us this morning reflects the most terrifying warning in all of sacred scripture. And it does take your breath away, doesn't it? To think that there are those about whom it can be said it is now impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. Not unlikely, not unusual, not highly improbable, It's impossible. You see, repentance, that turning of the mind and will away from sin and toward Jesus Christ, is indispensable to the experience of genuine salvation. No one is ever saved apart from a whole, soul, thorough-going repentance. It is inextricable to that work of faith without which no one is ever genuinely saved. And so thus, brothers and sisters, when John the Baptist comes on the scene and his ministry of preaching begins, his message has one theme, repent. And when it is time for the public ministry of Jesus Christ to begin, his ministry of preaching has one theme, Repent. And when the apostles go out after the day of Pentecost and the Spirit of God comes, they go out to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ, preaching this message. Repent. Because without genuine repentance, no one is ever truly saved. Hence, when repentance becomes an impossibility, so does the experience of salvation. And that is why this passage makes us shudder. Because it speaks about a kind of person for whom repentance is no longer possible. Which means, consequently, the experience of salvation is a lost cause. Now, if your mind works in any way like unto mine, all of what you've understood thus far now compels you to ask a very important question. About whom is the writer here speaking? Who does he have in mind when he pens these particular words? Well, throughout the centuries, you see, there have been two major options that have been proposed. In addition, there have been three or four others, but not of much significance and not much attention has been given to them. So I will not do that this morning. But two major views have been offered with regard to explaining who it is that the author has in mind when he writes these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. On the one hand, there have been some who have suggested that the writer is here speaking about people who have been genuinely saved at some point in the past. Their lives had been transformed by the grace of God. They had been brought out of death and into life. But then at some subsequent point in their lives, they fell away from Jesus Christ so fully and so finely that the gift of salvation was rescinded, taken away from them. 
Now, of course, you understand, beloved, uh, that to regard this passage with any kind of seriousness, one must also conclude in that particular scenario that this same person who has had salvation revoked could never be saved again. And whatever this passage means, it does say that abundantly clear, that there are a group of people about whom it is said they can never, ever again be brought to repentance. It's impossible. Now, there are serious problems with that particular view. Number one, such a view would necessitate a complete overturning of the work of saving grace in the heart of a genuine believer. <clears throat> such a view would necessitate a complete overturning of the work of saving grace in the heart of a genuine believer. My friends, I want to tell you this morning, when you became a Christian, if indeed you have... A lot more took place in your life than a simple decision to play on Jesus' team for a while. We have to be very careful by using this phraseology, make a decision for Jesus. Because, beloved, when God saves a sinner, there is a supernatural, multifaceted transformation that occurs within your actual being and that takes place on your behalf in heaven. And those kinds of things, you see, beloved, would need to be altogether undone if indeed the gift of salvation were to be taken away. For example, we're told that a Christian is a person who has been brought from death to life. That means they have been given God's own kind of life. Jesus calls it eternal life. And he doesn't mean by that life forever and ever and ever in heaven, amen. It includes that. But he means a kind of life, a quality of life, the very life of God in your soul right now. This kind of life, the life of God, would need to be overcome by the forces of death. Moreover, this person who had been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Colossians 1, would now be returned to the domain of darkness. The page that bore his name in the book of life before the foundation of the world would need to be stripped from its binding. Regeneration would now become unregeneration. The new birth would now become the new death. The heart of stone, which by the grace of God had been transformed into a heart of flesh, would now revert back to a heart of stone. Love for God would now be replaced by hatred for God, which is the natural disposition of the unbeliever. Spiritual understanding would now be given way to the old spectacles of spiritual blindness. The power of sin, which according to Romans chapter 6 was broken at the point of salvation, must somehow experience a glorious resurrection. Worst of all, forgiveness would now become unforgiveness. Which would mean that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross would have proved to be inadequate to save his people. But then again, how would we dare suggest that he even had a particular people to redeem if his own plan of redemption could not ultimately redeem them? I mean, we could easily go on all day at this particular point, beloved. Suffice it to say that for a genuine believer to have the gift of eternal life taken away from him would ne necessitate a thoroughgoing, complete overturning of the work of saving grace in his life and on his behalf. Now, there's also a second problem with this view that's even, I think, more overwhelming. That is, such a view would be in direct contradiction to the Scripture's consistent testimony that God not only saves His people, He keeps them saved. The Scriptures tell us 
He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. I take that to be a promise, don't you? The Scriptures tell us that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39. The Scriptures tell us that God's golden chain of salvation can never be broken, that those whom God predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. And I take it that there's no seepage in between any of those. The Scriptures refer to believers as those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, Jude 1. In fact, Jude ends his little letter by saying, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and great joy, Jude 24. The scriptures say that Christians have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption, Ephesians 4.30. Jesus says that it is impossible to lead the elect astray, Matthew 24.24. 24. He says in John 10, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. They shall never perish. It doesn't mean that they won't die, it means that they'll never enter into eternal condemnation. And why is it that this eternal life is indeed eternal? No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, brothers and sisters, I submit to you, we could very easily be here a month of Sundays speaking to this issue. It seems to me, however, that the weight of this biblical evidence is irresistible. God not only saves His people... He keeps them safe. Now, what you need to keep in mind is that the Holy Spirit is just as much the author of the book of Hebrews as he is the Gospel of John or the Epistle to the Romans. And because the Holy Spirit is in fact fully divine, you can be sure that he will never be at cross purposes with himself. I would take it to be axiomatic that the Holy Spirit, by virtue of being God, will never contradict himself. Therefore, whatever this passage does mean, it cannot be at odds with what is so overwhelmingly clear in the rest of the Bible. You see, beloved, this is what the Reformers called, or the Reformers referred to as the analogia fide, the analogy of the faith. The primary rule for interpreting the Bible is this, the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. That no part of the Scripture, no piece of the Scripture can ever be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in the Scripture. You see, beloved, contradiction does not reveal a flaw in the mind of God. Contradiction reveals a faulty interpretation on the part of man. Therefore, to interpret this passage in such a way as to have a genuine believer who can sin himself out of the grace of God and into eternal condemnation appears to be absolutely untenable, a view that we cannot live with. Not because it doesn't resonate with our way of thinking, but because the scripture is so abundantly clear with regard to this topic. So again, I ask you a question. About whom is the author speaking in this passage? Now, there is an observation worthy of our consideration at this point, beloved. And it takes a little bit of a discerning eye. I don't want to lose you here, but you can track with me now. All through this letter, right up to chapter 6, verse 3. All through this letter, right to chapter 6, 
verse 3, the author steadily and freely speaks in the first and second person. Me, I, we, us, you, your, yours. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 11. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk. Chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ. Verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so. In other words, beloved, this is extremely personal, isn't it? I, we, us, our, you, yours. What's more, these people to whom he addresses steadily in the second person, he also assigns to them a very important and significant Christian title. In chapter 3, verse 12, he calls them brothers. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, he calls them holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. In other words, the people to whom this author is addressing his comments are believers. But notice something, beloved. When we come to chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, the author immediately drops all words like we, us, our, you, yours, and he suddenly begins to speak in a different way using the third person. He says in verse 4, it is impossible for those. Verse 6, if they fall away, it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. Then when he gets to verse 9, he suddenly kicks back to his former way of speaking and he directs his comments to these believers once again in this very personal way. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, beloved in the Greek, we are confident of better things concerning you. Now, do you see this, beloved? In verses 4 through 8, there is a shift that occurs. That is to say, though he is still speaking to believers, his audience has not, uh, uh, not changed. He is still addressing authentic Christians. His comments in verses 4 through 8 are with regard to a group of people who are separate from them. He's writing to them about a group of people separate from them. But then we're still left with this nagging question, about whom is the author in fact speaking? The answer now is this, and it will become exceedingly apparent to you, I believe. He is speaking about a group of people who for some period of time had been external members of the covenant community, but who in turn had decidedly rejected Jesus Christ. It is what we refer to as an apostate, a person who has fallen away from close proximity to Jesus Christ. Not a garden variety kind of unbeliever, mind you. Not a rank pagan, not an idol worshiper, or a lifelong atheist, or a criminal of the worst possible kind. The people who are in view here, beloved, are church-going folk. 
Those who have lived and moved within the circles of Christian fellowship. Those who have experienced the benefits that come from living within the sphere of God's blessings. Those who in fact have made some public profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but who later, consciously, decidedly, and definitively have renounced Him. They are apostates. Now it is my guess that most of you here have never heard a message on the subject of apostasy before. But this is the theme now that is taken up in this particular section of Scripture. And for this morning and the next Lord's Day, <coughs> it is my aim to set forth before you three vitally important facts regarding this subject. The first deals with the context in which apostasy occurs. The second will deal with the definition of apostasy. And the third will deal with the severe consequences that come upon apostasy. And so just for this morning, beloved, and I want to work this thing a little bit. Fact number one is this. Apostasy occurs among those who live within the context of gospel blessings. Apostasy occurs among those who live within the context of gospel blessings. It's just this simple, beloved. Apostasy presupposes a nearness to Jesus Christ. Apostasy presupposes a closeness to the Savior, a proximity to the Savior. In other words, it is a condition to which churchgoers are particularly susceptible. Notice the mention of five benefits that have been experienced by those for whom it is now said repentance is an impossibility. First, these are a group of people about whom it is said they have once been enlightened. They've been enlightened. It is a metaphorical way, very simply, of saying they've come to the knowledge of the truth. The word simply means to cause something to be made known, to make something plain, to give understanding to. In other words, as a result of preaching the gospel, ignorance has been replaced by an intellectual perception of spiritual truth. In other words, beloved, here is a person who has come under the sound of the clear preaching of the gospel, and they've comprehended the facts of that message. No confusion in their mind about what that message means. Now, notice that nothing is said in this context about this message being believed or embraced or received, or owned, or relied upon. In fact, you'll notice that here in this passage, there is not one use of any of the typical salvation language that is used in the rest of the New Testament anywhere. Nothing is said about their faith. No mention is made of anything to do with their justification, their being forgiven, their being born again. They had, however, been instructed in the doctrine of the gospel so as to possess a clear apprehension of it. In fact, in the construction of the original, it indicates that this had been a thoroughgoing enlightenment. That is to say that there was nothing lacking in their mental comprehension of the gospel message. They had been taught well. They had been catechized well. There was no gaps in their understanding of the gospel message. They could articulate it back to you flawlessly. Now let me ask you an obvious question. 
in what context would this kind of thoroughgoing enlightenment most likely occur? Within the fellowship of believers, with the saints. Notice a second benefit they had enjoyed. We're told that these folk have tasted the heavenly gift. They had tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what is this heavenly gift? What is this gift that comes down from heaven? Well, to be honest, we don't know for sure. There are some who suggest it is a reference to the Holy Spirit because there are occasions in the New Testament where the Spirit is called the gift of God. But if that's true, it would seem that the next phrase would be a bit redundant because the next benefit says that they have been sharers in the Holy Spirit. My inclination is to think that this refers to God's gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. In other words, these are people who have had a taste of this gift. Now again, the writer intentionally uses metaphorical language here. We're not to think of a kind of physical tasting. The idea behind this word is to come to know of something by way of personal experience. But beloved, now use your discerning faculties to taste is not to consume. To taste is not to devour. To taste is not to digest and thus receive all of the nutritional benefits from something. Rather, it is to sample something, to try something, so that a subsequent decision can be made to take in more of it or to reject the rest of it. You go to the ice cream parlor and you notice a flavor that you've never tried before. Hmm. Blueberry cheesecake. I wonder what that tastes like. And of course you say it loud enough so that the attendant hears you. And she comes over and she says, would you like a taste? Sure. And so what does that attendant do? She gets a teeny tiny little plastic pink spoon, dips it in the blueberry cheesecake ice cream and scoops up just enough to give your palate a way of identifying that flavor. The purpose? To determine whether or not you want more of it. That's the idea right here. The heavenly gift has been sampled. Those nonsensical bumper stickers Try Jesus. That's what this is. Christ has not been devoured. Christ has not been embraced. The gift of salvation has not been in, uh, consumed. But a person's palate has sampled the flavor of the gospel. To the contrary, beloved, what is it that the Lord Jesus Christ says in that great gospel invitation of John chapter 7? He stands up on the Feast of Tabernacles and it says that he cries out, if any among you are thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Not merely to sample, not merely to take a taste, not merely to take a sip. A person who's dying of thirst, beloved, will never be satisfied by a teaspoon of water. He wants as much as he can imbibe. John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And what does he say to those people? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. 
Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Your forefathers ate the manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. Now, of course, beloved, Jesus is not advocating a kind of sacred cannibalism. Nor is there any kind of veiled illusion here that the communion bread and the communion cup literally become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. He is simply saying in the most graphic terms possible to these people who still remember that he had fed them breakfast the morning before, that eternal life is to be found in devouring him. Taking all of him in, not just nibbling on the periphery, wanting him to be a political messiah to suit their own agenda. If you want me, you've got to take in all of me. Now, it may be interesting for you to note that there are some people who have actually suggested that this phrase, having tasted of the heavenly gift, actually refers to the Lord's Supper. And that the previous benefit, having once been enlightened, refers to baptism. Now, nowhere in the New Testament is this word to enlighten used to speak of baptism. However, in second century sources outside of the Bible, that word is used to speak of baptism all over the place. And so the idea here is that here is a person who has fully identified himself with the people of God. He's been baptized and he regularly partakes at the table of the Lord. Now there are reliable scholars who hold that view. I do not hold that view. I don't think that that's what this means. Nevertheless, it cannot be denied that the people who are being spoken of here have been vitally involved in the community of faith. My friends, where are you going to go to sample blueberry cheesecake? You're going to go to Baskin Robbins. Where is a person to go if he or she is to sample the benefits of the gospel? This is a person who has been a part of the community of faith. Benefit three. This becomes even more evident. We're told that this is a person who has shared... In the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you how it reads in the original. This is very important. It's not some unimportant technicality. It reads this way in the original. Having been made sharers of Holy Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit. Simply sharers of Holy Spirit. And whenever you read of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, the name Holy Spirit without the definite article preceding it, the emphasis is not so much on his person as it is on his gifts. In other words, these are people who have been in a context where the gifts and graces and benefits and effects and the blessings of the Spirit of God were readily on display for all to see. It does not mean that the Holy Spirit came to take up residence within them, rather that they had observed His supernatural effects. In particular, His life-changing power. It refers to association with the Holy Spirit, not possession of the Spirit. This is a word here that is never used to speak of believers. It is a word that speaks of external association, not inward possession. So again, let me ask you the same question. In what context must these people be 
so that it can be said of them, they have steadily observed the powers, the effects, the graces, the benefits, the blessings of the Holy Spirit. They've been living with the people of God. They're a part of the life of the church. Benefit four. We're told that they have tasted the goodness of the word of God. I believe that what this means, beloved, is that they had heard the word of God proclaimed in such a way that it began to affect them. They had heard the word of God proclaimed in the power of the Spirit of God. They had benefited from this word. Perhaps after hearing it preached on the Lord's Day morning, they said, Wow, that was really a great sermon. Wow, that preacher was right on target today. Man, you know, there really is a lot to think about in what he said. Maybe I ought to be nicer to my wife. Maybe I ought to spend more time with my children. Maybe I ought to be a little bit more ethical in my business dealings. Maybe I ought not to be so selfish with my little brother or my little sister. We're told in Mark chapter 6, beloved, that wicked King Herod loved the preaching of John the Baptist. Do you know who George Whitfield's greatest fan was? A rank pagan. A pedophile by the name of Benjamin Franklin. King Herod loved the preaching of John the Baptist. He used to go down in the prison and listen to him preach. Didn't understand everything that John the Baptist said. But he was fascinated by his message. He had tasted the goodness of the word of God. And yet, of course, he ultimately rejected because he agreed to have John the Baptist beheaded, didn't he? So let me ask you, beloved, again. Where does a person in the first century have to go in order to taste the goodness of the word of God? Can't turn on the radio. Can't pop in a cassette tape. Can't run down to the local Christian bookstore and buy a pocket New Testament or a new Geneva study Bible. To come into the sound of the goodness of the word of God presupposes involvement in the life of a local church where the word of God is carefully, rightly, and powerfully explained. Benefit five. Not only had they tasted the goodness of the word of God, but we're told that they had tasted of the powers of the coming age. My friends, this is an amazing thing. I wish we had time to give serious consideration to it. I think we will later in the book of Hebrews. But for just getting an idea of what this means, keep your finger here, but turn back to chapter 2. <clears throat> because here we see an illustration of the powers of the coming age. Chapter 2, verse 3, the writer says, How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, Jesus was the first proclaimer of the gospel. It was confirmed to us by those who heard him. These Hebrew Christians heard the gospel from those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. 
Moreover, verse 4, God also testified to it, watch now, by signs, wonders, and various... The word used here is the same word used in chapter 6, verse 5, to speak of powers, miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Now, beloved, please don't let me lose you. There is in God's design a coming age. The glorious new heavens and new earth. But what you must understand, and today it seems to me that very few evangelicals understand, is that the breaking in of that kingdom began with the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We're told in chapter 1 verse 2 of this very book that when Jesus showed up, it ushered us into the last days. Joel says on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit falls upon those believers, this is what Joel has said would take place in the last days. Now to be sure, we still await the coming kingdom of God in all of its consummated fullness, and yet the beginnings of it have already been inaugurated. Uh, theologians like to use the term inaugurated eschatology. We are now living in the beginning of the end. We don't wait for something that will be altogether different than what we presently experience, beloved. We have tasted the first first fruits of what's to come in its completed form. And the initial signs, the powers of the age to come, were the displays of supernatural power that accompanied Jesus Christ and the first preachers of the gospel. The powers of the coming age. When those men spoke divine revelation, they had the authenticating ministry of the Spirit of God performing miracles so as to say to people, you better listen because God is speaking. And beloved, the people that are now mentioned in Hebrews chapter 6 were people who had seen it and experienced it. Now, do you see the inestimable benefits that are afforded those about whom it is now said repentance is an impossibility? My friends, apostasy is not a susceptibility for a pagan. Apostasy is not a sin that the idol worshippers in Papua New Guinea can fall prey to. This is not even an issue of someone who has heard the gospel shared with them by a friend in a family room or read the gospel in a tract or come to a church on a Sunday morning and hear the gospel preach one time. This is clearly a condition peculiar to those who have lived among the people of God, identified themselves with the people of God, and who have benefited in the people with the people of God the manifold blessings of God. One Puritan has said it this way, apostasy is a perversion to evil after a seeming conversion from it. Now you realize, of course, beloved, I, I hope this is not altogether foreign to you, 
that in the book of Hebrews already we've seen a historical illustration of this very thing about which I'm speaking. Chapters 3 and 4 recall the Exodus generation who perished in their wilderness because of their paganism? Adultery. Murder. Unbelief. They weren't ranked pagans. They were members of the covenant community. Every male in that tribe bore the mark of the covenant in his body. They had put the blood of a lamb on their lintel and doorposts and watched the death angel pass over their homes. They had seen the miraculous power of God in the plagues that had been poured out upon Egypt. They had walked through the Red Sea on dry ground with their own sandals. They had followed the manifestation of God in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And what did they eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Manna and quail. The gift of God. Most importantly, at the foot of Mount Sinai, they entered into a covenant relationship with God. You'll be our God, will you be your people? Okay, we're on the same side, let's go. And so here they are now standing at the door of the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. And you remember the spies, they return back to the people with the, the abundant fruit of that land in all of its beauty. And the people undoubtedly say to them, yes, that's exactly what God said it would be like. It's just as plush and as lush as He said. But when God said, go, they said no. In fact, every single time they ran up against opposition, they said no to God. Which proved the pudding. They really didn't believe in Him. And so, as unbelievers within the covenant community, they were barred from that land. Chapter 4 tells us a symbol of the ultimate salvation rest in heaven. Well, now you shift gears just a little bit. And in a new covenant context, these are the kinds of people that we're talking about right here in Hebrews chapter 6. Not rank unbelievers, but people who have lived within the context of gospel blessing. You want some New Testament examples? Have you had a category in your thinking about people like this? They're all over the New Testament. Remember the parable of the sower? The good seed of the gospel is sown. And Jesus says, four types of reception are depicted. Only one is genuine. In type one, we're told that Satan snatches away the word of God. In another, we're told that the preoccupations of the world choke out the word. In the third, we're told by Jesus that the word is received. With joy. I believe. I'll come forward. 
Yes, that's what I want. There's response. Positive. Enthusiastic. And yet Jesus says when trouble comes, and the word there is persecution, people quickly fall away. That's the best remedy to apostasy. It's the best way to snuff out an apostate every time. Turn up the heat. The apostates leave. Finally, there is the good soil. We're told that the word is heard, received. Fruit is born. My point is this. Initially, type 3 and 4 look exactly the same. The word is received. It's received with joy. There is receptivity, response, reaction. Over time, however, as a consequence of persecution, type 3 falls away. You got a place for that in your thinking. My dear friends, you've misunderstood everything I've said this morning if you think that this is an issue of eternal security. This has nothing to do with eternal security. It has everything to do with perseverance as the hallmark of authentic conversion. Paul had a ministry associate by the name of Demas who fell away because of love for this present world. In the book of Acts, there was a man, apparently a spectacular conversion, a sorcerer, no doubt, a sorcerer, no less, a man by the name of Simon Magus, who at the preaching of Philip, we're told he believed and he was even baptized, maybe even by Philip himself. And yet not long thereafter, we see Simon Peter putting the bullseye right on his nose and saying to him, you are a rank unbeliever. You are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And of course, beloved, there is no defection any more startling than that of Judas Iscariot. Do you realize that he is the greatest living illustration of the truth that's right here? He had once been enlightened. He had tasted the heavenly gift. He had shared in the Holy Spirit. He had tasted the goodness of the Word of God and he had tasted the powers of the coming age. My friends, Judas preached the gospel. And don't forget Judas performed miracles. And don't forget that Judas cast out demons. And don't forget that Judas healed the sick. He undoubtedly would have referred to himself as a disciple of Jesus. And yet Jesus called him the son of perdition. Now the reason for citing all of these examples to you, beloved, is so that you will understand apostasy is not some kind of a hypothetical possibility that has no relevance to, uh, relevance to us. The fact is, it is the unique susceptibility of people just like us. People who hang out with us. People who are a part of us. It happens to people who have professed faith in Christ and been baptized, just like Simon. It happens to people who are involved in Christian ministry, like Demas. It happens to those endowed with great charismatic powers to heal and cast out demons, like Judas. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Now why in the world, beloved, on judgment day, standing before the Lord of glory, would anybody submit a measure of evidence that isn't grounded in reality? 
They had performed miracles. They had cast out demons. They had prophesied. And Jesus says, I will tell them plainly. I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. You get the point. Apostasy occurs among those who live within the context of gospel blessing. Do you realize, beloved, that in, the ch that in a church like Christ Community Church, the reality of the experience of apostasy is more than a remote possibility? This week, I got a phone call from Rex Raper. Many of you remember Rex and Lois in Ohio. <clears throat> he said, Art, yesterday I went to the fastest growing church in our community. 3,000 people in just a matter of a couple of years. I said, really, what was it like? He said, let me tell you what the sermon was about. The entire sermon were clips of Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom. You go into a place like that, you preach the gospel one time, there won't be anybody back the next week. Apostasy will never occur in a place like that. Nothing to fall away from. Apostasy presupposes a nearness to Christ, a closeness to Christ, an understanding of Christ, an experience with Christ. Do you realize that if you have been in this church for any length of time, beloved, all of these things here can be said to be true of you? You have been enlightened. You've heard the gospel over and over and over again. More than likely, you've tasted of the heavenly gift if you've been here for any length of time. That is, the flavor of Jesus has become familiar to you. You've been sharers of the Holy Spirit. That is, you have seen and perhaps even been the recipients of the gifts and graces that come from Him through His people. You've tasted of the goodness of the Word of God if you've been here for any length of time. You've experienced the blessings that come from His Word. And finally, you've tasted the powers of the coming age. You have seen with your own eyes the displays of the power of God in our midst. If at no other time than this morning in the life of that man who sat here in this tub and said to you, it is the grace of God that has saved me. Now you have seen all of it which qualifies you to be susceptible to the very thing that's being talked about right here. It's in this kind of context, beloved, that apostasy can occur. And what makes this so utterly frightful, and this is for next Lord's Day, is that this passage tells us that apostasy is always fatal. It is a condition that is beyond remedy. It is impossible if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Now, beloved, I would be less than honest with you this morning if I didn't tell you that the people who've been on my mind most heavily this week have been our children. 
I just couldn't get it out of my mind. Think about the years of gospel blessing they will experience before they're ever old enough to even leave home. All of the sermons and all of the classes and all of the teachers and all of the worship services and all of the scripture readings and all of the praying and all of the singing and all of the testimonies and all of the great guest preachers and all of the communion services and all of the fellowship and all of the changed lives. My dear friends, it stands to reason that by the time our children are 18 years of age, there will be very little, if anything, new for them to see in terms of gospel blessing. And so I appeal to you, dear children. Don't fool around with the gospel. You are accountable to God right now for all of these blessings that He has showered upon your young life. If your mother and father speak the gospel to you, you are accountable before the living God right now for that. And if your Sunday school teachers have spoken to you about the gospel, then you are accountable right now before the living God for that. And if you have heard the message preached across this pulpit by the grace of God, then you right now are accountable to the living God for that. Don't live in this erroneous idea of some age of accountability. I'll give you my house for one verse. You are accountable from the moment you hear truth. And so I appeal to you, young men and women, I appeal to you, boys and girls. Jesus Christ has died for sinners and He has been raised from the dead. He alone is the Savior from death and sin and hell and judgment. Do not delay a moment longer. Everything that He has given to you is now at this present moment a means of your accountability before Him. And so I implore you, act upon your privilege while it is still today. Because the time may come when you can no longer respond to the truth that you hear. There does come a point in time, beloved, when a person hears the truth and rejects the truth. Here's the truth and rejects the truth. Here's the truth and rejects the truth that God finally turns off the truth. And it is impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. In many ways, dear children, it would be better for you never to come to this place with your parents. You being in this place makes you a potential candidate for apostasy. The peculiar susceptibility of those who gather with the people of God. And so right where you are, I ask you this morning, Cry out to God and ask Him to give you the faith to believe in Jesus Christ. And by His grace, He will save you. Would you bow your heads with me, please? If you can shrug your shoulders and be unmoved,
And all you're concerned about with is the fact that we're 10 minutes over time. Then you are in an exceedingly desperate condition. Would you take a moment right where you're at? And respond to God as you should. Oh, Father in heaven. We are thankful that there is a Savior. And Father, I can't begin to know what's going on in the life of each man, each woman, each boy, each girl. There may be people who've been a part of this church for years. But who are precariously close to the condition that has been spoken about this morning. There are children here this morning, our Father, young men and women as well, who have heard the gospel and heard the gospel and heard the gospel and... They think that they have their lifetime. But there are those who, prior to their death, have their hearts hardened in such a way that they can never respond. Hardened by the gospel. I plead with you, O Lord and God, may that not be the case among us today. I plead with you, Father, on behalf of these dear people. I plead with you on behalf of these children. Oh, Father, I pray, do not allow them to rest. Do not allow them one moment of peace until they turn from their sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would do that work powerfully. That there would be those who would not give you any rest until they know they have eternal life and they experience the peace of God. Father, search our hearts and rescue those who are without you this morning. We love you, Father, and thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.